Thank you for listening to the What Are You Reading podcast. Today marks the final episode of our show. After two years of incredible interviews, great book recommendations, two promotions, an engagement, two babies, more PCSs than we could count, lots of lessons, and some serious bloopers, the What Are You Reading team is dropping the mic. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed making this show. We're excited to share that DoD Reads will be launching a new podcast early this year. It's called The Transition Dilemma. Here's a quick teaser before we start the show. Hello and welcome. We hope for you to join DoD Reads' next series, The Transition Dilemma, where we focus on the intersection of personal and professional development as we experience change. Bottom line, we are most vulnerable in transitions and most importantly, they are inescapable. Whether it is leaving the military, returning from deployment, having a new job or boss, or even making the decision to take a risk towards the opportunity of a lifetime, change is always around us. And we explore the avenues of thriving in a transition. Stay tuned for more information on the DoD Reads next series, The Transition Dilemma. Hello, and welcome to What Are You Reading? A podcast produced by the DoD Reads Network. I'm your host, Tim Bettis, and today my guest is retired General Stan McChrystal. General McChrystal served in the Army for 34 years, retiring as a four-star general. An Army Ranger, he led the Joint Special Operations Command, as well as both U.S. Forces Afghanistan and the International Security Assistance Force, before retiring in 2010. He founded the McChrystal Group in 2011 and continues to serve as a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, where he teaches on leadership. General McChrystal, welcome to What Are You Reading? Thanks for having me, Tim. I appreciate it. Oh, it's our pleasure, sir. Uh, before we dive in, I have a series of questions I love to ask every guest we get to talk to on the show, uh, mostly because I'm curious about how everyone approaches reading, but especially how strategic leaders or senior leaders approach reading as a professional development tool. Uh, so my first question for you is, how do you prefer to read? Do you have a preference for hard copy, ebook, audiobook, or what's your go-to? Well, it's interesting. I'm typically doing two books at the same time, one hard copy and then one audiobook. And I use the audiobook when I work out, when I run, walk, that sort of thing. So it allows me. And I've been doing the audiobooks for a while. So I, I probably go through more audiobooks than I do hard copy because I fall asleep at night when I read. But that that's the way I prefer to take it. Yeah, my audiobook game has taken a hit thanks to COVID since I don't tend to have commutes anymore. But um, getting back into it when I have the chance. Second question, do you have a favorite bookstore or a place you like to shop? You know, interestingly enough, most of it's online now. There was a period when I would go to places like a Barnes and Noble that we have in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, because I liked walking through the aisles and just sort of taking it in. But ever since COVID, it's been almost all online. Sure. Do you have a favorite book? You know, it's funny. I, the default response for a person of my generation in the Army is usually uh, Once an Eagle by Anton Myrer, the 1968 novel. But but that's really not my favorite book. I've read it several times. I got several copies. My favorite is Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Oh, nice. And the reason it is, is I think Mark Twain, of course, he's hilarious in his writing, but it's also about change. It's about transformation. It's about changing a society that doesn't want to change and how hard it is. And I find it really compelling. My uh, my dad's side of the family is from South Carolina, or he's the South in general, and he's a huge Mark Twain fan. So he'd be mad to know I never read that book yet. Uh, I'll make sure I add it to my reading list. Okay, so let me dive into the big question. What are you currently reading? 
I'm reading two books right now. One I just finished actually yesterday, a book called Wireless Wars by a, an author named Pelson. And it's about China's Huawei as it tried to take over the 5G uh, really market in the world. And now the pushback by the United States, because I think it's an important uh, subject. And then the other was a surprising one. I'd been given a copy of Carl Sandburg's monumental 1926-27 biography of Abraham Lincoln. And I've read the first two volumes and I'm up to just about the Civil War. And it's just extraordinarily well written. And it's so in-depth on Abraham Lincoln. You know, I'd read a bunch and I teach him in my course at Yale. But this is a depth that I'd never been at before. And I, I feel like I know the man now. Well, how many volumes is it the uh, biography entail? Well, it's got the first two volumes, which are the prairie years is, is early. And then it's got four volumes for the war years. So I've got those on my shelf. My wife found an old set of those, but they are together probably about 2,000 pages. So it's a Mount Everest waiting in front of me. <laughs> Good luck. I'm not sure if you have a lot of reading time on your schedule, but uh, you seem busy with it. So you've written in you know the history of you as an author. You've written a number of books and articles on leadership, teamwork, and service. Uh, to include your most uh, your 2013 memoir, My Share of the Task, uh, Team of Teams and Others. Um, and you've recently written a new book called Risk, A User's Guide, which is a bit of a departure from some of the themes uh, of your previous book, or at least a little more focus uh, and more nuanced take on um, a specific component. Uh, what inspired you to write on risk specifically? Yeah, it's interesting because you're right. I wrote my memoirs. And then from my memoirs, I realized that the most interesting part to me was the transformation when I was commanding counter-terrorist forces. So we wrote Team of Teams because it explored the ideas there. And then I've been thinking more and more about risk. And the reason I have is because we've all been taught how to deal with risk. And there have been matrices and, and a lot of good academic work. But yet, in my own life and experience, and also more in society. I look at things like the failure during Hurricane Katrina, the failure in the 9-11 uh, uh, attacks of the United States to you know, basically connect the dots, and more recently, the failure of COVID-19. And all of those things show me that even though we have fairly predictable threats, we tend to drop the ball. And so I want to see what is it about risk the difference between what we think we know and how to deal with it and our actual performance. And you talked a little bit about fatalism in your book or uh, people's assumption that they can't control things in their lives or their surroundings and then just kind of give up. I think it's a, it's a way to dodge responsibility. If you claim that something's a black swan event, then you're basically saying there was no way they could have known and therefore being unprepared is acceptable. Sure. I think fatalism says that if something's too dangerous, too big as a risk that you can't deal with it, it's another argument for not doing anything. And I don't agree with that. I think there's a tremendous number of things we can and should do. It was statistically possible. It's not my fault. Uh, please let me keep my job. Exactly. <laughs> Essentially. Okay. Well, so, I mean, as I was looking at this, you know, I had to ask a devil's advocate question, um, which is, you know, should risk always be mitigated or conversely, can risk be a good thing for individuals or institutions? Um, you know, my immediate thought is, you know, lack of risk potentially feeds complacency. Uh, and then the two tangible examples I can think of, um, just as I was digging into this, is, you know, domestic political pressure to reduce U.S. casualties, leading to the adoption of strategies or structures that result in an American public that is more insulated from war than ever, 
uh, or the adoption of technologies in war that reduce risk to U.S. troops, but may also transfer that to civilians. Um, and I speak that, you know, I worked for about three years uh, in the MQ1, MQ9 community, you know, which is a massively surgical tool if it's employed properly. Um, but airstrikes in general carry their own risks, uh, as you know. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you've hit something really important, Tim. I'd like to take several angles at getting at it. The answer is, if there's a risk that is existential or something, obviously you want to try to deal with it and mitigate it in some way. But there's a creative tension that comes from the existence of risk. As you know, you pay more attention when there is potential risk. I think that when we think we can step away from risk, like as you mentioned with drone strikes from unmanned aerial vehicles, what we've done is we've given ourselves the illusion that if we do something that is in fact an act of war, shooting a kinetic strike at somebody, yet because we have no physical risk during the execution of that, we think there's no risk associated with it. But in reality, the risk is just different. You are creating antibodies against you in the place where you're shooting and resentment from people who feel their sovereignty has been violated. And so I think when we, we transfer or we step away from risk directly and insulate or protect ourselves, we actually, in some cases, endanger our larger mission. I would describe, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Ambassador Chris Stevens killed in Benghazi. There was a big investigation after him. People swore that Ambassador Stevens should never have been down in a location where he couldn't be perfectly protected. Well, my response is, if that's our attitude, then he should have been in Ohio because he'd be protected. Sure. He just can't do any diplomacy from there. And so the, the problem is the greater mission, the real risk is not doing effective diplomacy. And so we've got to learn to accept levels of risk to achieve the larger mission. Sure. And that was, um, I know there's been a big focus. Actually, I think there's uh, a proposal in Congress right now focusing on how to get, be at, get better at expeditionary diplomacy, um, you know, to the argument that diplomats are, tend to be locked up in office buildings, um, you know, the merits of that bill, I don't know specifically, but I know, you know, there's there's a big institutional push to be able to get in the field and actually do, you know, if we're reemphasizing diplomacy as a national tool, um, how do we get better at it? That's right. And I think that the reality is, and this sounds cold, if we have three or four ambassadors killed a year, that would be tragic, but it might be an indicator that we're out doing what we need to do. And what we should do is honor them and recognize it as a dangerous mission that they're on but stay out there, stay engaged. Great. Um, so uh, kind of continuing the same theme, uh, how should, how do you think DOD leaders should be thinking about risk both at the unit level uh, and at the operational? Um, as the nature of war is changing, as we shift into this era of strategic competition, do you see the nature of risk changing along with that? I see the nature of our understanding of risk being challenged. Uh, you, you alluded a little bit to her earlier, but when we have a strategic requirement or a strategic mission, we sometimes say, well, the people at the strategic level should think about that. And then people at the tactical level should be focused on the tactical part of it. In Afghanistan, we had an interesting tension there because there was a desire to reduce casualties. And one way you do that is to use massive firepower and body armor and armored vehicles. So you overwhelm your enemy. So your force is less vulnerable. The problem is that's not congruent with winning the support of the local population. And so sometimes we've got to understand 
that we've got to do those things at one level, like at the tactical level, we have to accept some risk as Ambassador Chris Stevens did. And at the strategic level, we've got to keep everybody focused on what really matters. And when we, when we have vertical layers that aren't as connected, that, that aren't really aligned on what it takes to be successful in the important mission, then we increase our overall risk. Um, when we have silos inside efforts, like in the effort in both Afghanistan and Iraq, with different U.S. government organizations, not to mention our allies as well, all operating often with a much less connection and coordination than we needed. Now, each organization is reducing the risk that they will lose some of their own control, some of their sovereignty. And so they are protecting their interests almost instinctively, but they're increasing the overall risk that what we're trying to accomplish at the national level uh, can't be done without that level of coordination. Yeah, I mean, there's a few crises that have happened recently uh, in terms of risk at the, well, tactical with strategic implications. Um, that I can think of in the past few months. You know, one I, one I, you know, proposed uh, kind of in our show notes is the the USS Bonham Richard fire uh, and the dismissal of the entire chain of command. Um, but even then, the New York Times article last month uh, revealing a March 2019 strike uh, in against ISIS in Syria um, that purportedly uh, is being investigated by a four-star general, but purportedly killed up to upwards of 70 civilians. Um, but you know, that's uh, the tension between the tactical focus. You know, of that soft team, for example, or of that firefighting team, um, and then the strategic messaging that may, uh, or the strategic impact that may have. Yeah, and this is a very complicated issue, and I'd love to pull on it a little bit, because what we tend to do is we see a mistake, or we see a bad outcome, let's put it that way, and we want to do a, an investigation so we can prevent that from ever happening again, maybe cut a fire break. Well, it has an insidious effect. Uh, if you do that kind of investigation, you may correct the mistakes in that particular operation, and, and you probably can get to it. But many other commanders and, and people who make decisions are going to be watching that. And what you do is you create in them a reluctance to take any decisions with any risk of a bad outcome. Sure. And so over time, you create this uh, culture of risk avoidance. Think about when we went into the Balkans in the 1990s, the number one force or priority was force protection. Well, that's ludicrous because if you go there with the whole purpose just of protecting your force, don't go there. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that you, you leave your force hanging, but your number one priority has to be the reason you go there. Sure. And, and so I think every time we do this, and you've seen it in training, if a commander has casualties due to live fire accidents, there's a tremendous sort of uh, hand wringing and investigation. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it causes less confident commanders just not to do live fires. And I saw it happen through my career. They would avoid creating those more risky events because they didn't want the possibility of a bad outcome. And of course, in the near term, everybody's happy because there aren't any uh, accidents or people, casualties to friendly fire and training. But when you get to combat, the force isn't as ready. And that's an insidious outcome uh, that, I, that I don't think we spend enough time thinking about. You're building, uh, you're, you're inherently building fragility into your organization. Exactly. Interesting. The next question I want to ask is, um, you know, focusing on, on the shift from Southwest Asia to the Indo-Pacific, 
uh, which is a major, major force restructuring that the U.S. defense community um, and obviously White House and the National Security Council are trying to pull off, moving away from a traditional counterterrorism and counterinsurgency missions um, to a more conventional force posture. Um, yet I think you and I know that terrorism isn't going away, um, especially, you know, the counterterrorism mission set. What are your thoughts on the evolving strategic environment? And what do you think national security professionals, especially uh, kind of the young, uh, young to mid-grade ones, should be reading instead? Uh, I know back in the day you recommended Abel Ferradano uh, as a fiction book that was worth reading. Uh, is that book still relevant? Yeah, I think it is. I, I would go back to the idea. You know, we we swing back and forth in where the defense, uh, the whole community goes after Vietnam, we swung back toward Europe. And part of that was appropriate because we had, during the Vietnam War, given short shrift to European forces and the rising Soviet Union threat at that point required it. So we created the new airland battle doctrine in the early 1980s, and we created the National Training Center, and we re-blued ourselves on conventional warfare. And that was, that was helpful and certainly paid off on things like the first Gulf War. The problem is when we do those pendular swings, we often tend to think that the thing we swung away from is not needed anymore. And in reality, the United States, more than almost any country in the world or in history, has to be able to fight across the spectrum. It starts with first where we or how we think about it. It's teaching ourselves to be more strategic in how we approach things. I would argue that the U.S. military is extraordinary tactically and probably not near as strong when you get up to the operational level and the strategic level. And so I think that what we have to do is build the capability, obviously, for the conventional uh, fight if it were to come in Asia. But we also need to understand that at the end of the day, you're dealing with populations. You're often dealing with social issues. The requirement to do those kinds of missions will never go away. And so we have to have the ability to create cultural acuity, to operate in, you know, very difficult, unfamiliar environments, make them familiar and be very adaptable in how we respond. Because if we take the lessons of one war and we just pick them up and try to use them somewhere else, that never works. And so I would argue that anything that teaches us how to think and then solve the problem you know, I would, old David Galula's book on Algeria is still really effective stuff because at a very tactical level, he describes the essential problem. Interesting. Okay. So uh, largely books on, or not largely, but uh, some themes would be cultural acuity, uh, critical thinking. Um, and I mean, is I assume the answer is not just as easy as reading books on China, uh, Russia, uh, or the Pacific campaign during World War II, but um, I mean, kind of your earlier point, you know, there's important lessons to learn, uh, but you shouldn't also just assume that uh, you can apply previous uh, previous models of warfare from uh, previous wars uh, in a specific theater to the future and assume it's going to work out. Yeah, I think the, the other wild card thrown in here, because the pace of change in societies and technology has been so much faster than ever before, we really don't have a clue what the next war is going to look like. Uh, if, if, for example, combat were to break out in Ukraine this week, many of the things we would see would surprise us, even though we're aware of the technologies, but the use of information technology, the integration, as they did in the earlier part in Crimea, of unmanned aerial vehicles and fire support and signal intelligence, all of those things exist, but we're not quite sure how they're going to mix together on a modern battlefield. 
how fast things are going to occur. And so I think we've got to study history. We've got to know the basic ideas behind warfare. We've got to have people become problem solvers. You mentioned critical thinking. That's exactly right. But I also think we need to marinate ourselves in the fact that the environment in which we live, not just in which we'll fight, but in which we live, is fundamentally different than it was even 20 years ago. And information technology has been the largest driver of that. And commercial off the shelf. Um, I'm specifically thinking of um, the 2020 war between Azerbaijan and Armenia, uh, that I think uh, some of the implementation of loitering munitions or other types of uh, I don't want to call them cobbled together weaponry because that's definitely not, you know, um, that's not the right way to describe it. But commercial off the shelf capabilities that I think of challenging traditional uh, defense technologies, uh, offensive doctrine, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, we've seen similar similar trends in the Persian Gulf here with the Abkhaz and Horace attacks um, a few years ago. Um, you're, so uh, I guess to your earlier point uh, of what to expect is just expect people to adapt and uh you know, wait to get punched and, um, you know, try to adapt quicker than the adversary? That's true. And, and if we go back in history a little bit and you look at the development of the tank or the aircraft or whatever, although it was happening relatively quickly and compared to any other time, you could watch what your opponents were creating because it took a while to develop a tank and there might be a slight surprise on the battlefield. But those things went in a, a pretty constant pace. And you really couldn't buy stuff off the shelf, commercial products, you know, maybe hunting rifles and all, but they didn't change uh, the game much. Suddenly in today's world, as you mentioned, off the shelf things, people can use commercial software to do attacks. They can use commercial drones. They can put, uh, they can put signals intelligence, all stuff that doesn't come from the military industrial complex. So when you look at your foe, it's hard, as it was easier in old days, to count the number of tanks and fighter planes they had and divisions. Now you're not quite sure of all the, the capabilities they have because they're so diverse and they come from so many quarters that it might, in fact, it's not might, it absolutely will surprise us hmm. how it interacts on the modern battlefield. Interesting. Um, okay, well, let me jump to the next topic in terms of uh, you know cognitive thinking, biases, and adaptation. Uh, in your new book, Risk, you write at length about the biases and the major institutional failures within the executive branch and the DOD in the lead up to the Iraq war. Um, obviously, the nation has just begun the long-term process of reflecting on the fall of Afghanistan. Have you had a chance to reflect on this, or would you have included more about the war in your book if you had known how it was going to end? It's a great question. Obviously, I've reflected a lot on Afghanistan. Um, I don't know if I would have written more in the Risk book. It almost requires a separate focus to try to, to put all that in context for, because if anybody's going to understand the last, we'll call it three weeks in Afghanistan, they really need to understand the previous 30 years. And when I talk to people, I often remind them that really in the 1960s and 70s, Afghanistan was a neutral nation. United States had done a fair amount of assistance work there and was remembered and appreciated for it. And then in the mid 1970s, as it drifted towards a socialist government at the Kabul level, you started to have unrest. And then of course that led to the overthrow of the government, the entry of the Soviets in 1979 in a big way. And then for the next decade, a fight between the Soviets and their, their Afghan allies and the Muj groups that opposed them. 
And 1.2 million Afghans were killed during that decade. And Afghans who were opposing the government and the Soviets, they felt as though they were proxies for the United States to a great degree in the Cold War. And so when we essentially turned our back on it, when the Soviets left, they felt like they'd been underappreciated and left high and dry. We thought that we had given the Soviet Union their Vietnam and it was our victory and, and we just moved on to the next sure. challenge. So what you did is you started up creating a dynamic in Afghanistan that has to be considered when you look at the post 9-11 activities by the West led primarily by the United States. And so when I reflect on that, I look back and I go, okay, what were the decisions that were made? People say we shouldn't have gone to Afghanistan. Well, we went to Afghanistan because of Al Qaeda, not because of the Taliban. We went because we felt that the threat of Al Qaeda represented by the 9-11 attacks had emanated from Tarnak Farms. And that mm -hmm. was correct. And so we had this desire to do that. And then once we got in there, we toppled the Taliban government as a required step, implied test to, to force Al Qaeda out. And suddenly you have this country that's physically uh, damaged. It is culturally torn apart at that point by, by 20 years of war. And what do you do? Do you just walk away? And of course, there's a moral issue. There's a practical issue. And so the West says, well, obviously, we've got to help them put together a government. So you make a series of decisions from that on how much do you help? What's the goal? Are you trying to prevent the potential of a terrorist sanctuary there? How much state building, how much nation building has to occur in that process? And it's only when you take people through that history and you look at decisions made along the way that you can step back and say, now, wait a minute, the forever war that the United States was engaged in for 20 years wasn't this lunatic activity by a bunch of deranged policymakers. It actually was done in a series of steps. Now, that, that doesn't make it the right outcome sure. and it may not make it the right thing. But it's very easy to see how that happens. Go back and look at Vietnam. Same thing. Go look at Iraq's a little different. Uh, but but the reality is it's good people working hard, making pretty logical decisions in the moment, given the information they have in the political situation. And that's what we need to go to school on. Sure. Because you can't step back, simplify an issue into a binary yes or no because you have a bad outcome or you're going to get a very sterile uh, view and I think an incorrect assessment. To kind of uh, go back to a previous um, theme earlier from our conversation, do you think it was an issue of um, short rotations and tact I don't want to say tactical decision makers, but tactical decisions that ended up being risk averse that seemed right in the current or in the, you know at the moment that decision was being made, but ended up constituting a larger fragile uh, whole? Um, if you look at the strategic level, knowing what we know now. Yeah, I think they all added to it. I'd start with the fact that we didn't really decide what we wanted to do up front, clarify it, and then align ourselves on a narrative. Instead, we sort of did it in the moment. We, we went a little left and right because we left that lack of clarity. And sometimes there's domestic uh, reason, po political reason for doing that, because if you leave a little lack of clarity, people don't criticize as much, but it's really hard 
on a, an effort like Afghanistan. And then the things you mentioned, like our short rotations, our lack of building uh, cultural and language skills, uh, failure to take a long-term view in building relationships and making certain demands upon our Afghan partners. So those were more at the tactical, the execution end, and they made it worse. But we also had flaws at the strategic decision-making level. So when you put those two together, you have real problems. Sure. And I imagine, um, you know, my experience, I have a close friend of mine who's former uh, AFPAC hands member, um, which I know is a program that was attempting to build long-term cultural knowledge, uh, partnerships and ties with, you know, the Afghan Pakistan military. But I assume a single program like that is not capable enough of, you know, maybe it was the right program too late or the wrong program um, stovepiped at a specific level that uh, didn't really have the strategic value or you know, do, do, do you have any specific reflections on that program or uh, broader in terms of building partnership capacity? Yeah, I'm a little biased on that because I'm the one who proposed it. Uh, so understand, you know, I'm sure, sure. With biased activity. I think it was a good program. It wasn't a perfect program, but it was a good program, but it was started a decade too late. Uh, we really, when we first went into Afghanistan, we had this idea we were going to go in very short period and come out. And so our military services didn't want to create, they didn't want to make the investment to create cultural connections, language skills and whatnot. So in 2008, when I went to the joint staff to be the director, I'd come out of five years in Iraq and a bunch of time in Afghanistan. I was convinced that we needed to create something similar to the China hands in the late forties. People who, uh, spoke the language, were very familiar with what was happening, and had a lot of time on the ground to build relationships and be effective. And so we proposed the program, and the chairman approved it, the secretary of defense approved it, and then all four of the, the major services slow rolled it. And I'll call a spade a spade on that. What they did was they they first said, we don't want to provide people to it. And we said, well, we need good people. And they got a bunch of volunteers, but they communicated to those volunteers that it was going to be bad for their career. They could do this Afghan hands thing, but if they did, they would be out of the mainstream on their career. So they, in a not very subtle way, they undercut the plan. And then as the plan was instituted, they did the same kinds of things. Now, I understand why organ institutions like services will do that because they've got a model that they've worked over many years and professional development. They said if they pull someone out of their career, essentially for five years focused on Afghanistan, that that would be too narrow. But my argument was what's more important than being successful in a war? I mean, that's what the military services exist for. And so I think it was a very short-sighted but predictable response. And so the Afghan hands program started too late it had the right intentions. It didn't get much support and it, it had some positive impact. But I think if we'd started 10 years earlier, been truly committed to that, to creating a cadre of people, I think we would have saved ourselves a tremendous number of troubles that, you know, constantly manifested themselves later. It was treated as a career broadening program that would prevent you from making 06. <laughs> that's exactly that's, what a great way of putting it. And that's, um, I mean... Uh, you know, I have a lot of friends who are foreign area officers, for example, who I know that's a similar, I mean, obviously a, uh, a very, you know, if not the exact same type of career field, uh, extremely similar in terms of its strategic intent. Um, but I know that's a similar frustration that the career field managers 
uh, and even the U.S. government is having trouble with in that particularly is uh, promotion. Um, you know, there was an anecdote I saw publicly in a, uh, uh, I think a news article criticizing the program saying we have more uh, Portuguese officers than we do China FAOs. Um, you know, but I also recognize that bureaucracies move slowly. So you think that is that program, uh, you know, the, the fix or is that, you know, um, what's the strategic value of uh, foreign area officers? I, I think it's huge. And you're right. How many foreign area officers make general officer? I mean, every once in a while it happens, but it doesn't happen very often. And so people go into that almost fatalistically limiting their career. I personally think we could start with language training and you say, well, people get language in college or military academy sort of thing. It would be a pretty simple fix. If Congress would simply say, we want every officer to be fluent in at least one foreign language, and we are going to pay people for that. We're going to give proficiency pay. And it's got to be high enough, something like $1,000 a month uh, for that proficiency. Wives would force their husbands to do it. I mean, it's they're not stupid. Or you could simply make it if you're not qualified and you don't maintain that qualification, you're not eligible for the next level of promotion. Now, that's draconian. And people say, well, languages don't matter that much. I'm not sure that they're correct. I think that if we were more uh, language qualified and we got out in the world more, that many of the problems we have would be fixed before they become big problems. And it's a different approach to what military officers are. If we think of military officers as technical people who drive tanks or, or airplanes and and that's what they do, and everybody else would do the thinking, I think that's a very narrow uh, and ultimately ineffective view. So I would, when we talk about making military leaders problem solvers, if you're going to solve problems in a foreign country, you need to speak the language. Sure. And I know, um, kind of speaking from experience, uh, there's at least been two successful programs or one successful program in the Air Force that is uh, causing a lot of uh, copycats, um, which is one, the language-enabled airmen program, I think is an attempt to organically cultivate language experience, not necessarily having it tied to a billet. But then I know kind of to your earlier, um, you know, introductory remarks about uh, technology uh, and adaptation, uh, a different type of language. I know there's the computer, computer learning initiative, I believe is what it's called, um, you know, but an attempt to teach better programming coding at the uh, kind of the tactical level. But I mean, two, two related but distinctly types of languages that are critical for um, success in the coming era. I think that's exactly right. If you think about digital expertise and familiarity, most young people get it because they just want to navigate the world in which they live. But I think we need to require it. And one thing you can't do, whenever you want someone to like learn a foreign language, someone says, well, they should do it in their spare time. My experience with that, there's you know one-tenth of one percent who can go learn something like a foreign language in their spare time. And so sure. you have to make the commitment. Especially if you're looking for something like Mandarin or Korean or Japanese yeah. or um, with those tier one languages. Exactly. Um, okay. Well, let me pivot to another question that's also education related because I know um, in my introduction, you, you know, mentioned that you're uh, you're lecturing at uh, Yale University, and specifically, you teach a course to undergrads uh, about the end of your military career and the importance of moving on, uh, among other things. Are you still teaching that course this semester? Well, I, I'm in my 12th year of teaching, but it's largely graduate students. It's about three quarters graduates each class. 
And it's not focused on the end of my military career, but it does include that as part of a leadership course. Are you adapting that course um, at all in the past decade, um, given the you know changes in the national defense strategy uh, and kind of the overall direction of the country? Or is you, are you specifically looking more towards corporate leadership and using your military uh, experience in that regard? Yeah, it's, it's all kind of leadership. And it's interesting. The course has evolved a lot. Uh, at the beginning of the course in 2010, when I started it, it was pretty operationally focused. I was giving people techniques in how to do leadership. And over the course of the more than a decade now, I've included a much bigger part on philosophy of leadership. Some of the theory, Machiavelli, Confucius, uh, Plato, so that they have a foundational understanding of how people have thought about and studied and executed leadership historically. I thought that was missing in most people. Then we we also look at the journey, almost a case study approach in people like uh, Abraham Lincoln. We look at him in great depth. We look at a number of case studies and people who are trying to change organizations and the challenge. And one of the things that we really focus on in the course is the environment in which leaders are going to have to lead. Most of these students, they average in age from the youngest undergrad, 20 years old, up to the oldest, we've had people in their late 40s. But most are probably down late 20s, early 30s. And what we do is we try to show them that the environment in which they are gonna lead now an information technology enabled world is going to move faster, be more complex. Leaders operate with challenges out there that didn't exist even 15 years ago. And the pace at which things happen is so much greater. And so we try to, to build a foundation of solid leadership philosophy and skills that they can moor themselves to, but then prepare them for this sort of bewildering environment in which most of them will take leadership positions. Great. Well, sir, as you know, this is a reading podcast uh, and one especially focused on leadership. So I do have to ask, uh, especially with your course updates recently, have you added any good books that you thought were really, uh, really worthy of, um, you know, a course list or are you uh, sticking to your uh, volumes of Abraham Lincoln? No, we've added an awful lot of books. We've studied uh, a number of leaders from Walt Disney, Coco Chanel. I mean, people who lead in different kinds of uh, situations can be very pertinent, even for military leaders. When I when I think about the kind, the body of knowledge that I wish I'd had, and I've always been a very active reader, but I wish when I was younger that I'd been more disciplined in reading some of the foundational works. I get back to philosophy and some of the basic histories because they really do form you know, a, a place to stand on to begin your own leadership journey and then studies. Then we go very much into things like Chernow's biography of uh, Ulysses Grant. Uh, and we, we look at a lot of articles and case studies on everything from President Trump's uh, activities in the 2016 presidential election. Uh, and we try to put people in or put these leaders in perspectives they may not yet have a chance, have had a chance to see, but give them a sense that these are the kinds of things we're going to navigate. We do a lot of reading on the civil rights movement, uh, sure. a lot of consideration of the Montgomery bus deep uh, bus boycott, and not just from the, the uh, 
perspective of Martin Luther King, because someone can, as you get further away from an issue, sometimes you say, well, I want to learn about the civil rights movement. You find one book and you read that and you think, well, I got it. Well, you got that one author's take on that. And so we try to put articles that were contemporary in the moment and then analyses later as well. Great. Um, oh, you almost jumped the gun on my next question. So I'm going to ask it anyway, because I think I can, uh, we can help broaden it out a little bit more. But um, you might be familiar, our audience is mostly junior to mid-career professionals, um, not just military officers, you know, NCOs, but also other folks involved or interested in national security. Um, do you have any memories in your formative years that particularly stick out early stages in your career that you wish you had known sooner? Yeah, it's interesting. I started as probably many young infantry officers did trying to become tactically and technically competent. So I focused on that. I was pretty much a micromanager as a leader because you want to be in charge and you're held responsible for the outcome. And so I wasn't thinking very much about the development of the soldiers that worked for me, except as make them good pawns on the chessboard that I maneuvered the pieces on. As I got more senior, eight, nine years, and I became a ranger company commander, and I had more uh, experienced non-commissioned officers and a, a very disciplined unit, their expectations of leaders were different. And I was pulled into a different kind of leadership because they didn't want me to micromanage them and they wouldn't tolerate it. And the happy circumstances as they pull me into being a different kind of leader because of their competence, I think what it did was it, it caused me to start looking at bigger issues or bigger things. I was now focused on developing my subordinate leaders and, and people in the organization for them to do the job and them to do the thinking and, and things like that. That trend continued through my career. And I was lucky enough to work for people who, who reinforced that. So that was sort of the overarching theme. I didn't see that when I started my career. I did, just didn't understand sure. that dynamic. Good, uh, good senior NCOs uh, leading, leading their boss and getting your hand out of their cookie jar so they can do their job and you can focus on yours. Exactly. Great. Um, well, uh, sir, before we wrap up, I do want to give you just the chance. Any other words of wisdom for the DOD Reads audience or anything you were hoping to cover that I didn't touch on? No, I, th I think the, uh, you've touched on all the good things. The words of wisdom I'd give, my experience is I read fairly eclectically abroad. I didn't read just military history or, or just biographies. I tend not to read a lot of fiction, but I, I read some. But I was very happy that I read more broadly. I read business books. I read some philosophy, things like that. And I would urge people to always do that. Always challenge yourself into areas that you're not familiar with because you'll find some really interesting things that sort of, they are pertinent to you. You don't need to just know what happened on the afternoon of the second day at the Battle of Gettysburg. You also need to know things in business and things in art and whatnot because that's the culture that we live in and being a part and familiar with that culture I think is extraordinarily important. And I think there's always the danger that military officers, because we have a professional military and it becomes guild-like, as if we get narrower and narrower and we have the same conversations and whatnot. So I would urge people to, you know, take forays out as often as you can. Great. That is a great note to end on, sir, because I can't, uh, can't agree with you anymore. Um, so with that, sir, uh, I just want to thank you, one, uh, for making time to come on our podcast. This has been a wonderful conversation. Um, I really appreciate your time, and I hope you have uh, uh, a wonderful, wonderful day.
Thanks so much. You're really kind to have me. That's all from us. Thank you again from the What Are You Reading team. Thank you.